I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the Sirens. Today we're talking about the movie The Blob, which is a cult favorite, our first foray into horror films, right? Yes. Um, so The Blob is a 1958 independently made American science fiction horror film. Uh, it was directed by Irvin Yeworth and written by Kay Lineker and Theodore Simonson. Uh, it's set right here in Philadelphia, or in greater Philadelphia, where we happen to be recording today. It stars Steve McQueen, billed as Stephen McQueen, um, and Anita Corso um, in both of their film debuts. It was distributed by Paramount Pictures uh, on a double bill with I Married a Monster from Outer Space, which is the movie that they're watching in the Colonial Theater in the movie. <laughs> That's very meta. It's very meta. So The Blob is set. Here in in Downingtown, PA, close to where where we are, Jane and Steve are on a date one night and when they see what appears to be an unusual shooting star. On their way to check it out, they encounter an old man whose hand has been consumed by a strange, strange blob of goop that's landed outside his house. Jane and Steve take the old man to the local doctor, and the blob goes on to consume most of the community until Steve and Jane can convince the local police chief, Dave, that they're not just teenagers goofing off, and something has to be done about this growing, dangerous blob. (laughs) This terrifying blob. (laughs) This terrifying blob of some kind of gelatin. (laughs) Jello. (laughs) There is a bit of trivia about this movie. So this was Steve McQueen's first starring role in a movie. He was playing a high school student. He was actually 27 at the time, which is is funny, because when I was watching it, I thought, he looks the same age as the policeman. Yeah. He looks like an adult. He's a full-grown adult. Yeah. (laughs) So, yes, he was an adult. (laughs) He was offered $2,500 or 10% of the profits, and he took the $2,500 because the film was supposed to be a flop, but like kind of like a throwaway thing, and it ended up grossing over $4 million. And by current estimates, it's grossed $40 million. So, so he picked the wrong thing. Poor choice. <laughs> he did the opposite of Fitty Set with vitamin water. <laughs> so the actual blob is a, a mixture of red dye and silicone. Um, it's never been dried out, and it's still kept in the original five-gallon pail in which it was shipped to the production company. So you can see it on display at Blobfest in Phoenixville. I have been to Blobfest. <laughs> I have seen the blob. <laughs> Uh, is it as scary in person as it is on screen? It's only terrifying in that it seems a little odd that it is still like a wet blob after all of these decades. I think that's chemistry for you. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of this movie, I was just thinking about the chemistry of the blob and what it was and yeah. why it consumed what it consumed. Right. But we will get And what we'll stopped it when it eventually was stopped. Yeah. Or Maybe. was it? <laughs> Um, Climate change. (laughs) They supposedly kept adding dye to the blob as the movie went on. So that it it got angrier. Yeah, it got, it was supposed to get red the more people it consumed. And I don't know if that was supposed to look like blood or what. I did notice that in the very high production quality. (laughs) And then the the title song of the blob was co-written by Burt Bacharach. (laughs) I loved that song. I like I found it delightful. Yeah, I kind of wish it was a little bit longer. I do too. If you're interested in finding it, it is on Burt Bacharach's Look of Love, the Burt Bacharach collection. Of course it is. (laughs) Um, 
And apparently Paramount tapped Bacharach and Mac David to come up with a non-threatening theme that would prevent people from freaking out at this terrifying movie. So we're supposed to be comforted by the theme song? Yes, by this kitschy theme song. Okay. <laughs> and I could also tell you a little bit about Steve McQueen. Yes. This is the first movie we've seen with him in it. He is still someone people talk about. Like I remember being in high school and the guys in high school all talking about how they wanted to be Steve McQueen. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing, because was he dead by the time we were in high school? Oh, he definitely. He was, yeah. he was dead by that time, but I guess his... His reputation lives on. Um, He's so hip. (laughs) So Steve McQueen was an American actor known as, quote, the king of cool. And his anti-hero persona developed at the height of the counterculture of the 60s and made him a big hit in movies of the 60s and 70s. And he was born in Beech Grove, Indiana to Julie Ann Crawford and William Terrence McQueen, who was a stunt pilot. Oh, yeah, so he probably had that adrenaline love from his dad. Yeah. Uh, he had a difficult upbringing and was shipped around to various family members a lot. At least two of his stepfathers beat him severely. At least two of his stepfathers? <laughs> there were multiple stepfathers. And Poor there's God. records of two of them. I will stop making fun of him. <laughs> he uh, lived on the streets for a time. Oh, no. He ran away to join the circus. Um, By the time he was a teenager, he was involved with gangs and petty crime and was picked up by the police a lot. And his mom and stepfather finally sent him away to reform school. Poor guy. And then he turned his life around there and got on board with living like a more structured life. And he eventually joined the Marines, where he further embraced discipline and served until 1950. So he kind of seems like he had the two extremes of, like, he was a very rebellious person, but when he wanted his life to be in order, he could just be, like, like a rigid yeah. <laughs> person. So McQueen used the GI Bill to study acting in New York after he left the Marines, and he pursued theater there. And on the weekends, he competed in motorcycle races for cash. Apparently, he was really a good racer, like, one of the top at the time. Um, In 1955, he moved to L.A. and began appearing in television and movies, and his first lead role was in the low-budget sci-fi movie, The Blob. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And after that, he was in The St. Louis Bank Robbery and Never So Few. And he also appeared as Vin alongside Yul Brynner, in the Magnificent Seven, and oh. basically stole stole the thunder of the lead by making sure that every shot he was in, even if the focus was on the lead, he was like doing something physically to draw the attention back to him, so that like the audiences all loved him. That's smart. Like he would be like doing something with his gun or like fixing his hat or something, and everyone was just constantly looking at him. Huh. So he received an Academy Award nomination for his role in The Sand Pebbles, and his other popular films included The Cincinnati Kid, The Thomas Crown Affair, Bullet, The Getaway. Oh yeah, Bullet. We have to do Bullet. We, we can do Bullet. And he was also in a number of ensemble films like The Great Escape and The Towering Inferno. Apparently when The Towering Inferno came out, they re-released The Blob as like a way of promoting it. <laughs> Here, what? <laughs> instead of watching this potentially good film coming out, watch this terrible well, film that we loved. We loved watching this. It makes me wonder if that's why this is such a cult hit, because it came out in the 50s, they re-released it in the 70s, and they remade it in the 80s. Right. 
So a lot of people were exposed to this in some way. Well, and weren't they going to re... I read somewhere that someone else was going to re-remake it in the early 2000s, but it never got off the ground. Yeah, I feel like it would be hard to do now with effects so that it was actually scary, unless you were going for a purposefully, like, silly movie. Yeah. So in 1974, McQueen became the highest-paid movie star in the world. He had a reputation of being really combative with directors and producers and being difficult to work with but he was so popular at the box office that directors still always wanted to work with him because it was like instant money he passed away on november 7th 1980 at the age of 50 so before we were in high school yes before we were in high school and he had cancer and he had surgery to try to remove it but it failed and that's so he died pretty young actually yeah he was cremated and his ashes were scattered at sea and he's still considered this icon of cool that you know people aspire to be yeah personally i would take james dean over mcqueen but that's just my taste (laughs) (laughs) he's fine do you have some biographical information to share yes so i looked into the life of anita corso who plays jane in the blob she is actually best known for playing helen crump on the andy griffith show in the 1960s which I thought she looked familiar to me, and so I, I guess I was a little bit surprised that I had seen her in something. But she, like Steve McQueen, is a Midwesterner. Mm-hmm. She was born in Hutchinson, Kansas in 1933, um, the daughter of J- Jesse Harrison and Opal J. Corso. She majored in drama at Northwestern University um, and studied acting with Lee Strasberg, who was a big deal acting teacher. During her junior year of college, she dropped out to pursue acting, um, and eventually, during the filming of the Andy Griffith show, she, she went back to, to college, taking classes at UCLA to finish her degree. She began acting um, professionally in the mid-1950s in New York and guest starred in two TV shows in 1955, the live program The Producers Showcase, um, and then the drama hosted by Robert Montgomery called Robert Montgomery P- Presents. She made her film debut with Steve McQueen in um, The Blob in 1958, And then later went on to appear in a lot of television shows. She wasn't in a lot of movies, um, but her, the Andy Griffith show was the, sort of her, the big thing. Um, She first appeared on the Andy Griffith show in 1963 in the second season as school teacher Helen Crump, who went on to become the sheriff's wife. I, I read a lot of stories about her performance and her chemistry with Andy Griffith in real life, a lot of like apocryphal stories that I couldn't tell how much of it was true and how much of it was sort of um, scandal that had been fanned during during the 1960s to help the, the run of the of the show. But apparently, as an actress, she impressed the producers so much as the teacher that they they decided that they were going to develop her into Andy's steady girlfriend. There were a couple of things that I read about the two actors actually having an off-screen affair, which I think is actually true. There was somebody recently wrote a book where that's mentioned. And but anyway, there was some reference to the reason why she got the, a larger role was not not so much because of her acting ability, but because of this affair and Andy Griffith oh. said, you know, we have such good chemistry. Which, oh, of course, because a woman can only right. advance if exactly. she's sleeping with someone. That's right. There I also read some things too about how um, if they had known that she was going to be such a beloved character, they would have given her a better name. Yeah, that is kind of a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've 
Andy Griffith is not a great name either. It just no. seems like... But he's not... He's not very appealing. Like, no. How do you go from Steve McQueen to Andy Griffith? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so the story goes that... So Andy Griffith was married at a time when... He was married when he started having this affair with Anita Corso. He wanted to marry her, and she refused. Um, she actually went on... She never wanted to marry anybody, which I respect as a sort of feminist thing. She went on to have a continuing role in the TV series The Blue Knight um, and in the short-lived series Mrs. G Goes to College. She died in 1995 of cancer in Los Angeles three days after her 62nd birthday. Like Steve McQueen died young but and from cancer. And she's buried in, in Los Angeles. I have to say that it's nice to see... To have both actors that we buy out die of natural causes. Right, and, and not from drug overdoses. Yeah, and not having... I mean, Steve McQueen had kind of a tragic upbringing, but as an adult, seemed fairly functional and yeah. difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. For once, there's not a lot of tragedy in yeah. there. Yeah. So this is good. See, the blob is taking us in good directions. <laughs> <laughs> Upside of it. Oh, should we get into it? I think so, yes. Um, so have you seen this movie before? I had seen parts of it. And this is actually funny because I went to Blobfest and I'd never seen The Blob. But I just thought it would be like a fun thing to do. We had friends who wanted to go and and went to it. And very interesting crowd. Yeah. So this is in Phoenixville, which is the setting for some of the scenes. Yeah. And the Colonial Theater is still there. Yeah, and still one of the like independent theaters mm-hmm. around here, which is kind of neat. And Phoenixville's kind of become a cool town now. Like, it's got it's had a resurgence. But as part of this blob fest, you can reenact running out of the theater like all those people did. And it's gotten so popular that they have to stage several reenactments. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that scene in the movie, I don't know if you've noticed this, but everyone running out of the, the theater, they don't look scared. They look like they're having a good time. They look excited. Well, that's another thing. I didn't bring this up in the trivia, but... There were a lot of extras in this movie who were just people, people. who lived there. Yeah. So you can you can definitely tell in a lot of the scenes <laughs> that people are not professional actors because people yeah. just are like slack jawed in <laughs> scenes, which is kind of great. I mean, it's yeah. Oh, did, I love that diner too. Yes, the Downingtown Diner. I know it made me want to go to a diner immediately. Yes, and that diner still operates, right? I think so. I I mean, under a different name, maybe. I think it's still there. It's not right in the town, though. Yeah. Um, we should definitely have, like, a live from a diner yes. edition of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Follow up. <laughs> so, what were your overall impressions? Um, my overall, like, takeaway is that I still want to know what happened to the little dog. <gasps> Did the little dog survive? Maybe that's why there's a question mark at the end. <laughs> Where's the little dog? Um... <laughs> I loved how terrible the all of the effects are. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to take place at night, but you can tell that it is the daytime. <laughs> and I liked the animation or whatever effect they did to illustrate the the electrical pole falling on the blob oh. on the diner. That's obviously not real. <laughs> um, I sort of loved that it was... I mean, I don't know. I guess I wonder if it was so obviously not real to... Um, to like 1950s viewers, or if they they're, they're more willing to suspend their disbelief just because that was the only way to do it. It wasn't like there was like computer yeah 
computer effects then, but I kind of like that it was so kitschy. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And some of the camera shots were, like, really, like, totally off-center yeah. and stuff, but they did some creative things. Like, I liked the scene where the guy's working on the car, yeah. and then you just see his feet sort of being dragged away. Yeah. I could see a modern horror movie still doing that. Yeah. Like, there is something... To be said for, like, not showing everything. Uh, podcast dog Freya is joining us. <laughs> she also watched The Blob with yes. me. <laughs> you know, you, you, do you have anything to contribute, puppy? She says she wants to know what happened to the dog, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very valid question. I wrote down, are they really just taking this person's dog? And then she... she they carry it around. Peri- they carry it around periodically. And then yeah. when they get really scared, they forget about the dog. <laughs> and then later, Jane is like, where's the dog? What happened to the little dog? The poor little dog. I was like, put it somewhere safe. <laughs> yeah, I don't Take understand. it home. Once they went home, I don't understand why she was like, all right, we're going to warn the town, so I'm going to bring this dog with me again. Yeah. Just leave the dog. <laughs> put the dog in a safe place. But I guess they're supposed to be 17. Yeah. Like, they're not supposed to be adults with, like, fully formed brains. So, we should, right? Yeah. Well, I thought another thing interesting about this movie was, this was the 50s, so this was the time when the whole idea of adolescence and teenagers was sort of building. And I thought it was cool that the movie was focused on teenagers and they were actively involved in saving the town. Yeah. Against communism. Yes. Because <laughs> apparently that's what this is supposed to be an allegory for. Jen didn't watch this movie with me, but she, and I think she has not seen it, but when I was asking her if she wanted to see it, she said, oh, it's that movie about communism. It's supposed to be an allegory against communism. You know how communism gets on your hand and you can't get it off? <laughs> and you can't, and then it just consumes you. <laughs> I thought that actually was freaky. I mean, the, again, you couldn't see things that well, but the part that I thought was the scariest was when it was on the man, yeah. and he couldn't get it off, and then it kept, like, showing it every couple minutes, and it would get bigger, and from a, like, since we work at a science organization, I kept thinking, like, I'm sure there is something like this that yeah. will just, like, get on you and consume you, and... Well, and it seemed like the doctor was, sort of had a suspicion that there was something, and that's why he called the other doctor, um, to, like, get a second opinion about, you know, what to do about this this growing blob something yeah <laughs> amoeba um, this amoeba <laughs> that's growing and consuming this person like he clearly thought it was something but yeah i mean i was impressed with how well he reacted he was like well it's some kind of parasite and we're going to amputate and yeah. probably that was the best thing to do yeah at that time but i was confused because i guess i kept thinking of it as like, this is something that just consumes everything in its path. Right. But it wasn't. It was only consuming... People. People. Yes. And I was sort of curious about whether it actually would consume the dog. Then. Yeah. Because cause then it would seem like it would be consuming any, like, life form. Yeah. But it didn't consume, like, plants. It didn't consume, like, inanimate objects. And it didn't consume the dog, even when the dog was out in the store with it. Yeah. So, are we to assume that it Just doesn't? Peep, giant purple people eater? Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> Red. <laughs> um, did you notice that it almost sounded like a lot of the dialogue was done in voiceover? Like, yeah. early in the... Even though they were moving their mouths, it... Seemed like it was on a different track. Yeah. Yeah. It so. seemed like that. 
Which I guess just adds to the like overall catch of it. The, did you also think it was strange that, you know, these are all teenagers and both the doctor and the police allow them to be involved yeah. to such a level that seemed highly implausible to me. Like that, you know, when Jane and Steven brought the old man in and they, they were all just hanging out in the room, like, yeah. you know, looking at this growing parasite thing. And yeah. I was like, no, you would, you would say, all right, thanks kids. Like go home. Now. Yeah. Like, since they clearly have no information about him or what actually happened. Yeah. I mean, I guess there was that, there's that whole side story with the policeman in the police station and the, the chessboard. And I thought that was funny, actually. It was, <laughs> it, was, it was sort of sweet that he, was, he wasn't he was exactly going to tell who he was playing chess with, mm-hmm. just that it got so boring at night. It seemed like they sort of went back and forth about whether or not they were going to believe these hooligans or mm-hmm. whether they were just, they needed to call their parents and send them send them home. It did make me think about how different things are with the police now mm-hmm. because it was a small town and Dave, who was like the police chief, first of all, the kid calls him Dave. Dave, yeah. Which I was like, wouldn't you at least call him like Mr. So-and-so, yeah. even if it's, even if you're not going to say like, sorry, you know, chief or whatever. But um, he also, like, says, oh, I know him. He wouldn't lie. Yeah. It's a lot of things that I'm like, mm, it seems like you're just going based on, like, oh, yeah, I know this is a good guy, so yeah. it's fine. Which I guess maybe you do in small town, small town PA in the 1950s. <laughs> Didn't it seem like it was an advertisement against raising children in, yes. like, the middle of nowhere? Yes. Because they're just going to be out running around it in the middle of the night. Yeah, they were up, so they're up, like, making out on the mountain, and then they're like, let's go try to find this shooting star in the woods at night, and then they're, like, playing chicken, and and then they're like, oh, let's try to solve this monster mystery. And then there's a late show, there's two late shows of, at the movie theater, and, and our parents (laughs) have to drag us home. Yeah. And we and our, like, little brother has to guard the house. It just seemed like they had nothing to do, and were really desperate. Yeah. And this is why I have a friend from Iowa, and she talks about how people would just, like, get drunk and drive their pickup trucks around. <laughs> yeah. Because there's, like, nothing. That's all you can do. There's nothing to do out there, so. Well, and, well speaking of drunk, did, did, did you like when they were going around the town? Like, at first, the high school, the other, like, high school kids didn't really think that that this was serious, that there was actually this, like, alien problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But then they pretty quickly were convinced, and then they all, like, went around to various establishments that were apparently still open, including (laughs) the bar that... Where the bartender said, we don't serve minors. So... (laughs) I liked when they went to that party. Yes. (laughs) And they they called him Paul Revere. That's right. And this is Paul Revere. That was hilarious. It was pretty great. But what time of night is this? Does this movie take place over, like, two hours? Does it take place over, like, six hours? What time are they... What time are they making out that it's, like... Are they... Is it during the school year? What... Or is it during the summer? And so, Uh, if it's during the summer, if it's dark outside so they can already see the stars, then it must be, like, 9 o'clock, 9.30 That's what I thought. It was, like, 9 o'clock. Yeah, and then those other kids were at the midnight showing, I guess. So it's gotta be, like, 2, 3 a.m., when everything's over. Yeah. So, yeah. Don't raise your kids in the middle of nowhere. Because um, they will find a blob. Um, how about the when they are at the 
the doctor's office early on, and Steve says, Doctor, nothing will stop it. And the doctor says, <laughs> get the gun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, maybe the nurse says that. I think it's nurse, the nurse Kate says, nothing will stop it. I liked her very dramatic, Doctor, I'm afraid. <laughs> that was great. Give that woman an Oscar. The gender politics of this movie. First of all, Jane was like an appendage. Yeah, spoiler, I don't think that this passes the impact. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I don't think two women even talk to each other in the whole no. film. There are, later, there are, eventually, there are those two other, like, high school girls. Those other yeah. teenage girls and who say nothing. They don't say anything. When Jane's reunited with her mom at the end, they don't say anything. Yeah, and yeah. most... They're more excited to see the little boy child than <laughs> Well, she's a girl, so I mean, she's not the heir. That's right. Most of what the women do is sort of cower and be protected by the men. Like, with Jane's parents, it's that way. With Steve's parents, it's that way. With the nurse, it's that way. When they're in the meat locker, Jane's, like, hiding and Steve protects her. Even the little boy has to, like... Do the protecting work. And yeah. Well, and, and Mrs. Porter, the woman who's supposed to be watching the house, comes, you know, shows up. I think that's what her name is, right? Yeah. Mrs. Porter. She shows up and starts cleaning up in her pajamas because yeah. she doesn't want the doctor to, you know, come back and see this mess. It's yeah. like, just, if he's gone overnight, go back to bed and come back yeah. in your clothes. Although she was kind of my favorite character. She was pretty movie. great. <laughs> I loved her hair curl. She well, oh, what I noticed was that she seemed like a real actor. Yeah, because so many of the minor roles in this movie were so bad. Yeah. Like especially the other teenagers. Yeah, that when she came on the screen and she was actually acting, I was like, oh, oh something <laughs> to watch. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't the best actor, but she was maybe the best actor in this movie. <laughs> Um, I did like how 1950s this movie was. Like, when they find the um, the asteroid that has the blob in it, they, Mooch says, which, like, the nickname Mooch is so 1950s, but yeah. he says, this little pebble was out there hot-rodding around the universe. Which, <laughs> you wouldn't, hot-rodding is not a verb that we use anymore. No. Um, I liked the unnecessary scene in the store where Steve... Jumps over <laughs> yes. the grocery aisle for no, like he's right by the corner. Yeah, why did he jump over? And then he just, for no apparent reason, vaults himself over. And, and I thought that was great. And <laughs> like later in his career, even though he used stunt doubles for a lot of things, he was known for certain scenes. Like, like there was a famous scene where he rides a motorcycle over like barbed wire or something. Yeah. And he did all of those scenes himself. Yeah, so that's, I think that's why everyone thinks he's such a hot shot. Because he jumps on uh, grocery store shelves. Yeah, I mean, not everyone can do that. No, not everyone would do that. <laughs> did you understand with the police, you know how there was the one police officer who thought the kids were pulling one over on them? Yeah. Did you understand what the reference is? Like, oh, he thinks he's still in the war, but he no. said like... I, the the kids know about my war record, so they're trying to bother me. And I was like, what are you... First of all, are you talking about Korea? Or are you talking about World War II? Second of all, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. I mean, that and the, like, the chessboard stuff, it, it, it seemed like there was more backstory for the police than for anybody else, which was fine, but it was weird. Like, I didn't understand why. And it was only... Like, the movie was only, like, 80 minutes long, so... 
they could have developed that, that more. I guess if they did, that it wouldn't have been as, like, ridiculous of a movie, but, yeah. like, in a bad way then. It would have been too serious. But then there, there shouldn't have been any of it. Yeah, that's what... It seemed like maybe there was some version of the script somewhere where those things made sense yeah. and were developed, but that they ended up on the cutting room floor. Or maybe that's partly why this movie is supposed to be an allegory for the fight against communism. The mention of the war and, and chess and... Oh, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that. But it doesn't make any sense. No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was funny that there are those three police officers, were there three or four, who had such, like, sort of distinct personalities. I mean, I couldn't tell them apart looking at them, but they had distinct Yeah, they were all different. Speaking of how I couldn't tell any of them apart, I, 30 minutes in, I was realizing how, I made a note to myself that says, how are all these dumb men going to stop the blouse? Because, of course, it starts with this dumb man finding something that he doesn't know what it is, and so then he gets a stick and pokes it. Yeah. Which no woman would ever do. A woman would be like, I don't know what it is, and then get the authorities to go and... (laughs) I'm not stupid enough to poke it with a stick. <laughs> yeah, and then put it on your physical person. Right. <laughs> um, my favorite part was when they gather all the townspeople and the police announce there's a huge emergency that they could all be killed. They don't know what it is and everyone should just go home. That's like the worst crowd control I have ever heard of. It's like, everyone, you might die. We can't tell you... What's going to kill you, or what's happening? Just go home. Just go home, and it's as if we did make any announcement at all. <laughs> we just brought you all together to tell you a basically a nonsense. And you're going to go home and be terrified, and yeah, that's that's our job. That's, that's <laughs> I guess that is what the fight against communism, that was what the Cold War was like, wasn't it? I mean, there was yeah. sort of an un, a faceless threat. Something's coming, you don't know what it is. Just Don't trust a, anyone. Yeah, just put a geography book over your head and you won't get blown up by a... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, how about how they let all the civilians help at the end, yeah. too? Well, when they needed all... When they finally figured out what would stop it and they needed to get the CO2. Yeah. I sort of... I don't know that about fire extinguishers. This is sort of jumping ahead, but... I mean, I don't know that I know that fire extinguishers are blowout cold stuff and... CO2. I guess when I think about it, I, like, realize that, yeah. but, and maybe because he's, he tries to, to kill the fire with the fire extinguisher, he, like, makes that connection, and then because he's doing it, he, he sees that the blob recedes because of it, mm-hmm. but it's sort of funny to think about, like, here's this kid who doesn't really know, know or understand anything, but he understands that a fire extinguisher is cold, and, um, yeah. I was impressed that he kept, like, you know, the phone that was off the hook upstairs and could somehow hear everything. And he was just yelling up, CO2, CO2. And I was like, oh, he knows it's CO2. I know. (laughs) And they can still hear him. They must have a good local school in Phoenixville. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I thought the ending was super abrupt. Yes. Like, because they go right from, we figured out it doesn't like cold. To what they were getting like the military in or something, yes. and then they were gonna somehow airdrop it into the Arctic. They just decided that that was it was cold that stopped it, so then they needed to airdrop it into the Arctic to keep it frozen so that it wouldn't grow. But then I didn't understand how I needed to know the logistics of moving this thing. <laughs> I know how did they get it off the diner? How did they get it off the diner? How did they contain it while they were moving it? Yeah, 
Did they like stick it in like a refrigerator truck? And then did that exist in the 1950s? I don't know. And <laughs> then they're just like, well, we'll just charter a plane to fly this down to the Arctic and drop it off, and it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Question mark. <laughs> yeah, I wrote, but there's a question mark. Mwahaha. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the appropriate response. Were they setting themselves up to possibly have, like, Blob 2? Like, a sequel? I guess so. Like, maybe it will be fine, maybe it won't be fine. You have to think, though, if it really killed, like, 50 people in the town, that's pretty traumatic. Well, yeah, in a small town, Downing Town is supposed to be in the movie. Yeah. That's a sizable... I mean, I guess there would be a lot of people in, like, the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, it's a lot. And then would there be a government (laughs) cover-up? What happens next? Are the police covering it up? No, but now the military knows about it. Yeah, the military knows about it. All the town people know about it. And what happened to the dog? And what happened to the dog? Yeah, so is the moral of this movie actually not that communism is bad, but that the U.S. government is bad because they are covering up this the blob in the Arctic, which could at any point come back and consume us. Take over the whole world. Yeah. Especially now that climate change is warming everything up. Maybe now's the time for the sequel. (laughs) It's not so cold here anymore. That's right. Let's pitch that to some Hollywood, like, film company. Oh my gosh, the next one could take place at one of those Arctic research stations where people already have to live indoors, like, all the time, and then the blob would just come. (laughs) Yes, and then there could be a dog there, too. Maybe a penguin. Yeah. Who knows? That's right. Which are not consumed by the blob. No, they get to live in peace. That's right. Because the people who cause global warming are consumed by the blob. Yeah, good. (laughs) So the blob is reawoken by the the warmth caused by global warming. Mm -hmm. But it actually then solves global warming and climate change by By killing all all the people. people. (laughs) So they're just prescient, the creators of this film. That's That's the social justice angle. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl Let me call a preacher, what can I do But give my heart to you Well, do we want to say anything about the costumes? Do, is there anything to be said about the uh, costumes? The only thing that I wanted, I noticed Well, I love the hair curlers on Mrs. Yes. Porter um, Did you notice that Jane went home like, and went to bed, and she was wearing one outfit, and then she was wearing a different outfit? Yes. yes. Didn't that seem weird to you? Yes. I um, made a note <laughs> that said she was wearing a yellow dress that's super cute, then later she's wearing a white blouse and a blue skirt that re- goes remarkably nicely with the car. Oh, yeah. His car was awesome. <laughs> I was like, I want that car. Yeah. I was wondering, like, is that your car or is that your dad's car? Yeah. So that was all I noticed. I really liked... Her clothes. It was, everything was super 50s with the mm-hmm. tiny waist. And um, when she passed out, you could see that she was wearing petticoats. Yeah. And they were, I mean, it was neat to see sort of uh, the regular clothes of regular people in the 1950s instead of some of the like, fancy outfits that we've been seeing. In gowns. I also noticed that she changed her shoes from heels for the date to flats for fighting the blob, which seemed appropriate. Sensible. (laughs) She's nothing if not sensible, that Jane. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Do you want to talk about the social justice? Well, I mean, the thing I kept thinking watching this movie, and this is obviously... um, an anachronistic thing to think about, but that 
if Stephen had been a person of color, yes, and gone to the police like this, like how would he have been treated? Because I, he was so forgiven for things. Like he was doing the backwards drag racing and. He comes in with a story, which seems really made up, and everyone's just like, I don't know, it's, you know, it's Steven, so, uh, yeah, we know that he's okay, and, you know, we're gonna let him off the hook, because it's Steven. And yeah, and there's a little bit of eye-rolling, and, like, we're calling your parents. Yeah. But. There's no, like, we're putting you in jail, you're a troublemaker. Yeah. So, I've, just with everything that has been in the news over the past couple years, it made me think about that, like, how he was sort of given the benefit of the doubt. Well, and even sort of, like, related to that, the moments where the police said, you know, you're kind of being a jerk about this and you need to stop, like, joking with the police, the way that that Jane sort of jumped in and said, you know, no, I saw it, and I, you know, or, you know, I, I didn't see the blab itself originally, but, you know, I believe him, I trust him, and because she's this, you know, white girl, she has even more... She's more believable even than this you know, this white guy. If she were a a woman of color, she was just that would yeah. not be the case at all. Yeah, yeah. There were no people of color in this movie, were there? I I think there were a couple of people in the theater, but yeah, not not more than that. A few extras. The other direction you could go with the social justice aspect was in a positive way. The community, yeah, like, coming together, mm-hmm, and that they. In a way, like, the police seemed a lot more trustworthy than, you know, they probably would be to pick... You know, the fact that everyone's like, we need to go to the police, they're going to help us with this, and then the police actually do help them. Yeah. I thought that was good. And then the whole town comes together to fight the blob. Yeah. So... To end this this uh, terrible thing. So that, I thought, was a good message, because you could see it going like, oh, there's this scary thing and we don't know what to do with it, and people just fleeing town because they don't want anything to happen to them but everyone stayed and worked on it yeah so kind of corny but it's still still a message yeah and probably better than what what happens now yeah for sure everyone for themselves (laughs) (laughs) yay blob i've been living my own life making my own decisions for a long while now it's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again we talked about the Bechdel test a little bit, so are we in agreement that it does not pass? Yes. <laughs> I think we are in agreement that it does not pass. <laughs> not only does it not pass, I, I thought it was it was definitely like a movie that was depicting the men as the heroes and yes. the women as people to save and comfort. Yeah. Or at, the, at the most, they are bystanders who sort of help, but they don't yeah. have speaking parts and they don't, they don't have any power. Yeah. It was sort of proof that, like, a, a test like the Bechdel test is necessary to say, yes, in fact, there are movies where, where women don't don't speak and don't speak to each other and don't mm-hmm. don't talk about something other than the men in their lives. Yeah, because there were a number of female characters in this movie, but they never talk to each other and they don't particularly say much. Yeah. When they are talking, they're... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, Danny. It's like the the... Potsy of the movie. <laughs> She's like, yeah! <laughs> what rating would you give this movie? I would give it a two and a half because I enjoyed watching it for the kitsch factor. Mm-hmm. I do like campy stuff sometimes, so I liked that. I am someone who scares easily, so like 
the fact that it was a non-scary horror movie I thought was good for me. Yeah. Because even watching some of the old silent horrors like Nosferatu and stuff, like, I will get That's scared. That's terrifying. Yeah, they're scary. So, like, this was just my speed. Right. <laughs> supposed to be scary, but actually ridiculous. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I, I think I give it a two and a half, two and a half stars, because of the, the local color to it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of really, I didn't know ahead of time that it was kind of processed ahead of time that it was set around here. And so, you know, at the end, seeing the Downingtown Diner, I, I had this moment of, wait, is it our Downingtown? The <laughs> Downingtown that's just right around the corner? Um, so that was kind of nice. And it was, you know, sort of because it had sort of a surprise element, it was different from watching the Philadelphia story, which is yeah. obviously about Philadelphia. Yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> So what's our next movie, Hillary? Um, our next movie is all about Eve. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter, at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.